0: Hey, this is Trameka and welcome to another special bonus episode of Deep Dives with Trameka Benjamin. You all really enjoyed that last bonus episode, so I just couldn't wait. I could not wait for season two. I had to just bring you another bonus episode. So today what I'm doing is I'm bringing you Dr. Casey Sachs. And if you don't know her, she's amazing. And she's the deputy assistant secretary for community colleges with the U.S. Department of Education. So on this episode, Dr. Sachs is going to share some stuff with us about your strategies for maximizing federal funding, some common misconceptions, and give us some good advice on advocating for your institution to make sure you get some of this money. So like always, if you enjoy the bonus episode, you can hear more at www.deepdivestv.com. Let's dive in. So, Dr. Sachs, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. It means the world to me that you're here. And before we get started, I just want to make sure, are you comfortable with me calling you Casey or do you prefer Dr. Sachs? Please, Casey. We're friends. Okay, awesome. And I want to talk to you first and foremost, because when I shared with a couple of my colleagues that I had this opportunity to talk to you, Casey, they immediately wanted to hear, obviously, about the CARES Act. So here's the deal. We understand that with the CARES Act, the funding helps schools respond to the coronavirus. And I know that there are certain portions that are designated based on the types of students that are served. But I need you to tell me a little bit more about how how those funds are allocated and if there's any flexibility at all in school eligibility.
1: That's a great question. And we've been getting a lot of questions about CARES. And we actually have a good section of our website um, at the, if you go to the ed website, so it's ed.gov and search for coronavirus or for CARES, you get tons of information. So it might be a bit overwhelming. So I'll break up sort of the pools of funds to give you an overview. And then if there are specific questions, I would certainly point you to that website. So then you could sort of dig into that section. Okay. So the first section of coronavirus relief funds in CARES, were in discretionary grants to states. So that was $300 million. It was 1% of the total, and the secretary got to make discretionary grants. So she split those up into two pools, one that really focused on K 12 and rethinking K 12 education models, and the second that was about reimagining workforce preparation. So the Reimagine Workforce Preparation Project is one that I've been very involved in. It's to help states leverage entrepreneurship and short-term training programs to really think about folks who are out of work, um, small businesses in particular, and how do we help address that. So states have applied for those, those have been awarded. um, So it's not still something that folks could apply for, but it is something to watch because they're really big programs. And I expect there to be some very cool projects that emerge as a result of what's happening with those reimagined workforce prep funds. That's
0: interesting.
1: the dollars, really, that that everybody had discretion over, um, were around the governor's emergency education relief fund. So that was three billion dollars, just shy of three billion dollars, that went to governors, uh, totally based on a formula. So sixty percent based on population, um, and then forty percent based on children who meet the federal poverty definitions. So not a lot that schools could do in terms of flexibility, but. I will highlight a couple of examples of some cool things that have come out of it. Um, Like Michigan decided to use all of their governor relief funds to pay for their frontline workers to have scholarships. Um, South Carolina committed all of their funds to HBCUs. Massachusetts is using theirs to prop up struggling schools. So it really depended on um, the governor and what the priorities were. A number of states said this needs to go to K-12, and so that's how they invested the funds. But if you're in a state that hasn't figured out what you're doing yet, I would say this is a place where your relationship with your governor's office will really make a difference because you can talk about what are statewide strategies. And we're starting to see some really good ones that have come out to think about. Like Texas is all about upskilling and reskilling displaced workers. So we're seeing some great workforce examples. We're seeing some great stuff at the post-secondary level. Um, It just sort of depends on the state. There was a lot of discretion with those governor's funds
0: and i think a lot of in this particular area i'm assuming that you probably get a lot of questions regarding those funds but at the end of the day those funds were provided to the states for the states to defi- decide um in the governor's office to decide where those funds and those resources go because it's been yeah yes that's exactly it and
1: so you will see a lot of differences just because states are so different and priorities become so different that um you know if you have a strong Shio like you do in Texas, you're going to see something that's driven out of the Shio's office, which is not surprising at all um, because he reports to the governor's office. And of course, that's going to be sort of where those priorities fall out. Got it. And then there's a couple other pools of funds that went to states. The first is um, called the Elementary Secondary School Emergency Relief Fund. So that's $13 billion. Wow. Um, This is all astonishing to me, even talking about things in the billions, Um, but just over $13 billion that went to states um, and the funds went directly to the SEA. So the state education agency, again, it's all formula-based. So Title I, Part A is the K-12 language that kind of really allocated what that looked like. And then the SEAs um, sub-granted out to the local education agencies, again, based on their Title I share. Um, so you have K-12 schools that have some funding relief. Um, and then in higher education, which is the area that most of your listeners care a lot more about there, it's just shy of $14 billion that went out in the higher education emergency relief fund. And so those went out as grants to institutions of higher education. Um, that was almost all of the funds, 90% of the funds went out in that way. And that was that split. That was the, um, Half of the funds had to go to students and half of the funds could be used to help the institution. And then the other two areas were in grants to HBCUs and minority serving institutions and in a FIPSI um, award. So there was a competitive uh, process there. So those are sort of the big overviews of how those funds could be used. And so there's a lot of latitude in terms of what states are doing and what schools are doing. Um, But each pool of funds has a different set of rules tied to it. So if you're really, um, if you're curious about, you know, I got HBCU money at my institution and am I allowed to do X with it? um, That would be where I would point you to the coronavirus website. And it's, so it's ed.gov forward slash coronavirus. And that would be a really good place to go to look for what's your specific
0: question. Awesome. And I think that we've, this is exactly what I needed to have answered. This is great that you took care of that because that's one of the main questions we get. And then, you know, the the questions that I've kind of prepared as I um, have done this work, I think that you and I have gone on about a three-year relationship and I've seen You know, when from the moment that you were an Aspenite all the way up until now, um, you serving in this office, in this position. And please correct me if I'm wrong. Your exact title is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Community Colleges, Office of Career, Technical, and Adult Education. Is that right?
1: So my title is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Community Colleges. And the office that I work in at the department is the Office for Career, Technical, and Adult Education.
0: Well, okay. So since you've been in office... What are, you know, a lot of different institutions are going through these multiple paths of funding well beyond care. So I'm going to step away from CARES Act and I'm going to talk specifically about the work that you have done prior to the coronavirus. And, you know, you and I have had uh, multiple conversations about, you know, some of these schools that are just doing some profound work as they start to build their their model of how they want to tackle their um, their proposals for funding. So what are some of those golden opportunities in those colleges that give these institutions that competitive edge as colleges are going on the path to funding?
1: Yeah. So the best colleges have a plan. They aren't just chasing grants. Um, And they, they also know which grants are reoccurring. So one of the things you see across the federal government is there are discretionary grants that are sort of one-time things. That's going to be like the Reimagine workforce preparation grant that I mentioned before that came out of CARES. But there's also lots of reoccurring grants. So the Perkins Act, for example, your school gets an allocation. Almost every community college gets an allocation across the country. There's a couple that opt out or there's a couple that don't qualify, but almost everybody participates in their state Perkins projects. Um, So that's,
0: that's something that's a reoccurring opportunity. So what I'm hearing you say is, number one, they need to have a plan. Number two, from that plan, they determine what are those one-time grants that they want to go after based on the plan. And then what are those recurring opportunities for funding that they need to tackle, that they need to go through the strategy of applying?
1: Right. And so for the ones that are reoccurring opportunities, like C Campus is a great example from the Department of Ed. It stands for Child Care Access, means parents in school. It's Mm -hmm. a grant. it helps support exactly what it sounds like. It's about child care at school so that you're keeping students who are parents enrolled in school. Um, that's very relevant to a lot of our community colleges. but when funds come available, usually grants are open for like a 40 day window, a 45 day window. And that is not enough time to plan or to do any of the intentionality that you need to to have a, a good application. So the good schools really know what's expected and know, gosh, C-Campus is going to open in the next year or two. Let's come up with what our project should be right now and make sure we have all of our community partners and everybody who we need sort of on board with what that is going to look like. And then when it opens up for its 45-day window, it's much easier to submit an application because then it's just a matter of writing the grant to whatever the specifications are and not coming up with all new partners and all new proposals
0: and it's funny it's funny you say that because i've i've been on the other side of those conversations um at a um, at a college level where they, the grant comes open and the entire grant's office or the foundation or the program's office shuts down for like a month, creating a whole program with all these partners. And then what happens is surprise, they get the grant and then they're like, oh my God, how do I execute this grant? I forgot that. Say that I needed a coordinator. I forgot this and I forgot that. Where if they just start with a plan, right, the, the, the rest will come from, the rest will follow through. And it's very interesting that
1: you say that. (laughs) I would also add that the really good colleges have built a whole cohort of people at the school who understand federal grants. So at Ed, one of the ways to do that is to get your faculty on our list of people who review grants. Um, The way you do that is on a website. It's www.g5.gov. So the letter G and the number five. And so you go in, you submit your information, and then when there's a grant that you're a good fit for to review, you get called and you get paid an honorarium um, to spend a week essentially, that's usually about right, reviewing grant applications. Um, and wow. I actually I would suggest reviewing for NSF and the Department of Labor as well. They have a different registration process than we do, um, but it really helps people who might be writing projects understand. Um, What is, what's expected? What does a good project look like? So if you have people who you think, um, gosh, they might be good, or I would really like to get this person involved, this would be a great way to get people, I mean, get your math faculty involved, get your English faculty, get everybody involved so that you can really think more critically about what goes into a good federal application.
0: And it's not just that. I agree with everything you're saying for that reason, but also Because a lot of times the delivery of the services is just as important as providing access to the service because there's outcomes that have to be reported on those grants. So you having faculty involved and they are actually delivering the commodity of education is critical because they now know what they're stewards of, right? Right. Those students who are coming in, they're teaching them based on what they have played a part in applying for and also, you know reviewing for people who went through the process before them. So I think that's a great piece of advice. And in addition, I do think it was really interesting, something that you shared um, with me probably about a year or so ago. I remember you were all over the country. I mean, I think we were joking previously that you have an obscene amount of domestic miles because you traveled all over the country looking at what these community colleges are doing to connect and engage their communities that to impact enrollment and transfer rates. So can you talk to me about that program? I know we're in COVID times, but I was so, so, so struck by how great this program was.
1: So are you talking about the Rural Grants Convening? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so one of the things that I did in this role was I really noticed that a number of our colleges um, struggle applying for grants. Like, how do you do this? What does it look like? So I led a, several r- what we called rural grant convenings to help community colleges um, really just get the information and training and learn how to access federal funds for their institutions. We talked about recurring programs. We had a dozen different federal agencies with us and come in. Um, and I think one of the things that folks said was surprising to them is that we all we all all and by we I mean all the federal agencies said. you you should be reading the Federal Register regularly because that's how the federal government communicates with the world. And so that's going to be what are priorities, what's coming up, what are we thinking about, what are policy kinds of changes. Um, And so that's not going to immediately make you more competitive for a grant, but it will because... So for example, when a new secretary of education comes in, he or she is going to have a set of secretary priorities. So folks are going to check the federal register. And so if you, you know, when we have a new secretary of education come in, he or she will say, these are my priorities. And let's just say equity is one of the priorities. Then you'll know that any discretionary grants that come out from the Department of Education in the next four years are probably going to incorporate equity as a priority and a way to get extra points.
0: Which so it goes full to the grant, Yeah.
1: Right, but you can sort of plan ahead. So that'll be in the register. And then you'll know that um, something that I might write into my C Campus project, if we're doing that child care means parents in school program, um, is going like it should be sort of a tickler in the back of your head of this was in the Federal Register. I know I'm going to need it in the future, so it's not immediate. Um, but we also really talked about reading Grants.gov regularly. That I know when I was in West Virginia, um, I had an assistant who read it for me, and she would send me you know, this has to do with community colleges, or this seems relevant to workforce programming. And then we would sort of sift through and say, oh, here's a discretionary project that's from the Department of Agriculture. It actually might be a good fit for us for a variety of schools. So sort of knowing ahead of time, the priorities and um, what's coming out can help give you that edge that you really need.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, what I'm also knowing, noticing is that as you, very similar to what you just said about um, your time in Virginia, um, in West Virginia, you, you realize that reading this, you were able to figure out opportunities for partnerships too, right? So yeah. does it help a college if they partner with state and nonprofit agencies or local community partners when they're going after this federal funding? And if so, talk about how so. How does that work? Yeah, it absolutely, uh, yes,
1: partnerships are so critical. Um, When I think about the Reimagine Workforce Preparation Grants that were part of CARES, those were only awarded to states that had really strong partnerships between their state workforce development agency and education and training providers. But I think when I, I think about our community colleges, we're really good at educating people, but there are lots of things that we want to do and we're not very good at them. So social work stands out to me addressing housing insecurity or food insecurity. But all states have the capacity to do those things through health and human services, their housing offices, departments of agriculture. We have programs that exist specifically to help citizens in our state. And so colleges don't have to go it alone. It's not just state agencies either. Like I think about Catholic Charities in Fort Worth specifically does case management to keep students in community colleges. Goodwill, they offer job placement and dozens of wraparound services to some of our most vulnerable learners. And those are just things that um, our colleges often say to me, you know, we can't do this and we really want to. And pretty often I say back, maybe it shouldn't be you. Maybe you should have this partnership with someone in your community who does it better than you do.
0: That's great. And, you know, speaking of, um, you have a very unique ability to um, to be able to relate from you know, the administrative perspective because you've actually worked in community college as well as this policy perspective because now you work um, at the the governmental agency. So in your experience, what do you think some of these misconceptions are um, at a community college leadership level as it pertains to funding?
1: Well, I think first, um, folks should understand how funds are allocated. Well, maybe first they should think that they could look for dollars outside of the Department of Education. One of the first misconceptions that I think I hear is that people think I'm a school and so I should just be looking to the Department of Education to fund whatever program or service that I'm looking for. Um, and that's just not true. I mean, the Department of Education does some really cool things, but so does the Department of Labor and the Department of Agriculture. And the State Department has some targeted community college grants that are very interesting So first, I would say, look beyond the Department of Education. But then beyond that, I think that people really um, haven't dug into where does the money come from? So at ed, generally, our post-secondary dollars come through the Higher Education Act. And so if there's something wrong with it, you need legislation to change it. So right now, HEA, Higher Ed Act, it's up for reauthorization. So it's a really good time to advocate for changes. Um, And one of the things that I want our community college colleagues to hear is that normally higher ed advocacy organizations, so you think about AACC or ACE are both advocacy organizations for higher education, um, they don't fight between sectors of higher ed. So they're really intentional about not saying um, community colleges are underfunded and so let's take the money from four-year schools. They're very intentional at not doing that. But I actually think it's a mistake for community colleges because it's the sector that serves the most students. It's the sector that serves the most disadvantaged students. Right. And understanding some of the formulas could really help our sector. So just an example, because I'm a total example person, um, and Sarah Pingle from Education Commission of the States pointed this out to me. Our federal work-study dollars aren't allocated based on student need. They're based on institution. So in Massachusetts, where a quarter of the state's allocation of work-study dollars is spent in the public sector, that means three-quarters of it is spent in the private sector, the institutions with the largest allocations, they're all four-year private schools, Northeastern, Harvard, Boston University, and MIT.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Right. So as you go down the list, you don't see a two-year institution until number 19 in Massachusetts. And that's Bunker Hill Community College. And they only get 8% of what the top four private
0: institutions receive. So it's mind-blowing.
1: It's mind-boggling. And so when I think about the formulas that already exist, there's no equity in the way the work-study formula works in the Higher Education Act. The dollars, from my perspective, should follow the student, not follow the institution. But that's just not how it works. And so, I mean, other places I would point to the same problem are in TRIO and GEARUP. There's a huge equity problem in the allocation, and I think we need to be asking some really critical questions in the Higher Ed Act reauthorization about what would happen if these were formula programs for states instead of competitive. Community colleges spend a lot of time and money writing TRIO applications, and you get so many extra points for being a prior TRIO grantee that it's really hard to break in even if you have a perfect application. So you might serve the most vulnerable students, but you can't access the funds that's supposed to be helping the most vulnerable students. So we have some real problems in the structure that exists. And I actually think some of our advocates could get way more involved to say, we have some equity problems and let's address those intentionally.
0: So, you know, what advice would you give to leadership on how to advocate for those schools?
1: Well, it depends on what you're advocating for. Right Um, At the federal level, what we're talking about is federal advocacy. So your community college agencies that do a lot of work in that space are AACC and ACCT. So that's the um, those are the two groups that really do the most for community colleges in particular. So I would say working with them, they've got some great legislative government affairs folks who really know this space. So that's one way. But every single one of our community colleges has federal representation. They've got People in the House and the Senate who want them to be successful, who want their state to be successful. And I think um, telling your story to those people and helping them understand like, here's what can best help whatever state it is that you're from is really important. And also to recognize that if you're going to start challenging something like the federal work study formula, that if you're in Massachusetts, like my example, it means that those same federal elected officials are also the elected officials who serve. Harvard and MIT and Boston (laughs) College. And so, um, there are also disincentives for them to want to do the right thing. And I think it's really important to say, this is what the right thing is. I mean, we've had way too many conversations in the last year about equity and about social justice to completely let this go unchecked and to have that be part of the central conversation is really important.
0: That's a, thank you for that. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the importance of an institution having a plan. And, you know, what I have learned um, in the um, decade plus time being in higher ed is that, you know, it is far easier said than done when it comes to a funding plan or a funding strategy. How do you want where how do you align that with your mission and what does that mean? It's a very easily delegatable project because it is so complex that a lot of times administration is just like, I don't want to deal with it. Just go find me money. So what type of advice, um, let me just phrase that a different way. What is, how, if, if someone who, and we all know presidents, they're not going to come to Dr. Sachs to say, Hey, Dr. Sachs, I really don't know how to tackle this, this funding plan, but I need one help me, but I'm going to ask for them. Right. So what, you know, how did, what's the first thing that they need to do to tackle this work? other than just delegate it to someone who probably doesn't know 100% of what to do? Right. That's a great question. So
1: I would actually say that they should have a few projects that they could see on the horizon that would make a difference for their college. And they need to be able to talk about them in different ways. So this is kind of basic communication strategy. Um, When I was in Colorado, we needed to redesign developmental education. It was a huge priority. Well, there are no grants for redesigning developmental education. At least there weren't at the time. Some foundations have since stepped into that space and really seen that it's important. But we knew we needed to redesign developmental education. What we had access to was a workforce training grant. And so saying to our grant writer, okay, we're going to apply for this workforce training grant, and part of it is going to include redesigning developmental education because we needed the funds to be able to do some of the work. Um, And it got funded and it was a really successful project. I think I have several examples like that. We used same also in Colorado. We used a manufacturing grant to ramp up credit for prior learning. So we did a prior learning initiative um, and we used manufacturing as the umbrella to be able to pull that off. When I think about schools that I've seen do this really well, actually the Community College of the Dalles in Oregon they're exceptional at this. And what they do is they work with their largest employers, uh, their mayor, and their chamber, their local chamber, to identify community needs. And then together, they all come together and advocate to accomplish what those projects are. And they update their projects twice a year. And they s- travel both to the state capital and do legislative advocacy at the state level and to D.C. So when they come to D.C., they say, you know, right now we know we need this infrastructure project, so let's make sure we go talk to the Department of Transportation. And so while the Department of Transportation is not somewhere that I think community colleges normally go, it matters a lot for some of the infrastructure that they need in that region. And that's something that their mayor has said, we've got to go do this. So the community college president spends the time and does that with them because their mayor also shows up to the Department of Education when they're talking about how do we break into whatever the next discretionary project is that we see is important. So they've thought about what they need in their community, and they're actively together looking for outcomes.
0: Well, it's interesting because what I'm hearing from you is not go find me money. It's let's take a look at the mission. Let's take a look at where we want to be in a year. Where do we want to be in six months? What programs do we really want to hone in on and grow and develop and cultivate and then look for ways to fund portions or all of it creatively? and be able to tell the story as to why those, whatever that funding resource, um, is providing how to tie the, tie the bow between the two. Is that right. my correct? Yes, that's absolutely um, right. And I, I think far too many times the biggest mistake is just go find me money, you know? Well,
1: and it's money for what? Like I can find you a grant to send students to Pakistan, but like, do you have a language program? Do you have reason right. to like, is there, is this meaningful? And maybe it is like, You know, I think about Red Rocks Community College, and they have a very rich international program, and they're really committed to making sure that students can go abroad. And so it's completely aligned with their role and mission, but not every community college sort of has those priorities. And so it it is really important to think through what's our college working on and what matters for us. And then let's look for funds that support what our priorities are.
0: Awesome. Well, you know, Casey, I, as always, I enjoy spending time with you and I really appreciate this information that you gave. Um, I think it's going to help a great deal of our listeners to figure out the very first step that they need to take. Number one, to plan f- plan for funding, to align it to their mission, but then also to build a proper strategy to go get the resources that they need to serve their students. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Tramika. It's just a pleasure.
0: Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Casey. I appreciate cool. it. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed our time with Dr. Sachs, because I sure did. And I absolutely love that I was able to release this episode early because, you know, it's good information. It's timely. It's super important for you to get ahead of this stuff as you start thinking about your budget season. So if you liked this episode and you want to hear more about what Deep Dives with Trameka Benjamin has to offer, it's super easy. Just go to www.deepdivestb.com or find the episodes in your favorite podcast store. And don't forget, we're all over the social universe, right? So we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So for now, thanks for listening. I'll see you when we launch season two in February.